Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. New developments in Trump's 2020 election case. The judge now calling for a hearing to decide how much Trump can talk about the case. How Trump responds in a rally earlier today. Another major shakeup at Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's presidential campaign. DeSantis replacing his campaign manager with a close aide from his gubernatorial office. 75 more Catholic schools are shutting down, but in a certain state, Catholic schools are growing. We hear from a Catholic priest to see what's behind the changes. Massachusetts, in a state of emergency due to a surge of illegal immigrants costing the state $45 million a month. And the Big Apple has a new shelter in the works. And Ohioans head to the polls today in a key vote to alter the state's constitution. Abortion access lies at the heart of the election. At least two people killed, hundreds of thousands still without water, and thousands of flights delayed or cancelled. This is the aftermath from the storms that tore through the eastern U.S. last night. The two deaths include a 15-year-old boy in South Carolina killed by a falling tree and a worker in Alabama who was struck by lightning. The damage from the intense storms is scattered from Alabama all the way to upstate New York. Across several states, crews are working to clear downed trees and power lines today. A spokesperson for Maryland's largest power company called the destruction, quote, catastrophic. About 170,000 people in five states are still without power. About 4,000 flights were canceled or delayed today. Dallas-Fort Worth with the most delayed flights and New York's El LaGuardia with the most canceled. And former President Trump today again speaking out about his indictments and the latest poll numbers. That's as his lawyers are fighting with the Justice Department over how much Trump is allowed to say publicly about the 2020 election case. NTD's Iris Tao has more. In touting the latest poll numbers, former President Trump today said that the latest indictment from last week has only increased his popularity. In the morning consult that just came out, I wanted to see, because, you know, every time you get indicted, I like to check the polls, because <laughs> one more indictment that I think this election's over. And poll numbers by the morning console updated today show that Trump holds a rock-solid lead after the latest indictment, and currently standing at 59 percent. And Trump speaking today in New Hampshire, an early voting state in the GOP primaries, again lashed out at the latest indictment. Because I'm sitting in a courtroom on bullshit. And he asked his supporters if he even needs to participate in the GOP debates. Should I do the debate? Meanwhile, Trump's lawyers are fighting with federal prosecutors over the DOJ's request for a protective order, which is meant to restrict what Trump and his team can say about the details in the 2020 election case. The judge in charge of this case, Judge Tanya Chuckin, has said that she wants to hold a hearing about this issue before the end of this week. But while the DOJ says it's ready any time, Trump's legal team responded today saying that they want to push it back to early next week, citing a busy legal schedule with his lawyers. And Trump, meanwhile, will not appear for this upcoming hearing at this courthouse. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Howe, NTD News. And we've learned that Judge Chutkin has scheduled the hearing for this Friday at 10 a.m. Trump's appearance has been waived, so he won't have to personally attend. 
Another Republican candidate for president has qualified for the first primary debate later this month. Former Vice President Mike Pence's campaign confirming that he has met the requirements. He's replacing his campaign manager, Janera Peck. This ends weeks of speculation about Peck's future. DeSantis is replacing Peck with his gubernatorial office chief of staff, James Utmeyer. Utmeyer is a trusted advisor. He's known in Florida as an enforcer of DeSantis's agenda and devoted protector of his political brand. This is the latest development in a shakeup of DeSantis's team. The Florida governor has fired dozens of campaign staffers in recent weeks. And speaking of the 2024 GOP primary, big changes happening in Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' campaign. He's replacing his campaign manager, Janera Peck. This ends weeks of speculation about Peck's future. DeSantis is replacing Peck with his gubernatorial office chief of staff, James Utmeyer. Utmeyer is trusted advisor. He's known in Florida as enforcer of DeSantis's agenda and devoted protector of his political brand. It is the latest development in a shakeup of DeSantis's team. The Florida governor has fired dozens of campaign staffers in recent weeks. And Florida could become the first state to offer a classical exam for public college admissions. The Florida Board of Governors is poised to vote on it by the end of this month. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards has the details. Florida's public universities will likely be adding one more standardized test for entrance to public colleges. A committee of the State Board of Governors is expected to vote on adding the Classical Learning Test, or CLT, to standard college entrance exams by August 30. The CLT launched in 2015 as an alternative to the SAT and ACT exams. The test offers assessments for grades 3 through 12 and evaluates English, grammar, and mathematical skills. According to the CLT website, the uniqueness of the test is its emphasis on foundational critical thinking skills and its use of classic literature and historical text for the reading selections on the exams. On May 9th, Governor Ron DeSantis signed a bill authorizing the CLT for use in all school districts and for scholarships. Uh, we are allowing this new classical learning test to also qualify so students will be able to submit a CLT score uh, in order to sa uh, satisfy requirements for bright futures. Critics of the exam say it centers on white Europe and America. Juan Vasquez Heilig, provost and vice president for academic affairs at Western Michigan University, told Axios classical education is really a wolf in sheep's clothing. In July, the Florida Board approved controversial standards for how black history would be taught in schools to include teaching about acts of violence committed by African Americans as well as acts of violence against them. Critics said the adopted standards were a big step backwards for Florida students. A spokesperson for Florida's Education Board told Axios if the CLT exam is approved, universities could start accepting scores for the 2023-24 admission cycle. Steph? Thanks, Arlene. And next, across America, Catholic schools are dealing with a changing landscape. Many of the schools are shutting their doors for good, while others are bursting at the seams. And Titi speaks with a Catholic priest to learn more. At least 75 more Catholic schools across the country are shutting down for good. The closures are happening mostly in major cities, such as Philadelphia, Boston, and Cincinnati. But in Florida, it's a different story. 
The waiting lists for Catholic schools are actually growing in the Sunshine State, and new schools are opening. So what's behind these changes? We spoke with the executive director of the Catholic Education Foundation, Father Peter Stravinskis, to get some insight. Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the locale. Uh, so in the Northeast, we're essentially in a demographic winter. <laughs> uh, you can't have a school if you have no children. Uh, and people leaving the Northeast for the Southeast and the Southwest. He also touched on some points dealing with parents. Secondly, it's important for uh, pastors, including bishops and priests, uh, to challenge the priorities of some parents. And the, uh, the third element is that uh, priests and bishops have to get comfortable in warning parents that sending their children to the so-called government schools is endangering the souls of their children with the agenda that's across the board. He explained that during the pandemic, enrollment in Catholic schools increased. And some parents began to notice the differences between Catholic school and public school curricula. Some parents woke up uh, to discover some of the very, very damaging materials that were being foisted on their children uh, in terms of human sexuality, uh, marriage and family, uh, organized programs of, of agnosticism and atheism. All of these things uh, are, are very real uh, situations. And he added this. God made them male and female, and a permanent union, uh, one man and one woman, and so forth. So it's not something, some weird idea that some medieval monks thought up. Uh, and so the church's job is not to invent new teachings, but simply to hand on what she has received. For decades now, it's been an acknowledged fact that Catholic schools are superior to inner city so-called public schools. I, I don't call them public schools, I call them government schools. Uh, that's a known fact. In New York City alone, the Catholic Archdiocese of New York closed 12 schools as of the end of the past academic year. And congressional Democrats visited Eagle Pass, Texas today. That's where Governor Greg Abbott has installed razor wire and floating devices to deter illegal immigrants from crossing the border. NTD's Melina Weiskup examines the story from various vantage points and offers an update on the DOJ's lawsuit against Texas. A Texas congressional delegation and members in the Hispanic caucus are in Eagle Pass, Texas, taking a closer look at how Texas is handling the illegal immigration influx. Here's how Congressman Joaquin Castro describes it. The clothing of, of people, including kids, that are that's stuck to the wire, literally stuck to the razor wire. They're forcing Border Patrol to stay away from some of these areas when it's the Border Patrol that actually has responsibility uh, for all of this process. Texas has installed buoys along the Rio Grande River to deter illegal crossings. The DOJ sued Texas, calling for the river barrier to be removed. Later this month, a federal judge will hear the case to determine whether those floating barriers are legal. The group of Democrats have long been critical of the Republican governor's approach, but Republicans say the cost of not having the aggressive deterrent feeds other serious issues. Among those being trafficked most, children. Unbelievable. We're going to have to decide, as Texans, what we're going to do about it. 
Republicans have disputed the Biden administration's claim that illegal border crossings are down because Republicans say this is due to a change in how data is collected. Also, a new policy that simply funnels what would be illegal immigrants through the ports of entry. Now, there are a few bipartisan bills here in Congress that address both the immigration reform issue as well as border security, but we have not yet seen any hints from leadership on either the House side with Speaker McCarthy or the Senate side with Senate Leader Chuck Schumer that they're willing to move these bills forward for a bipartisan solution. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. Next, more on the immigration crisis. Massachusetts is now calling for help from the federal government as it pays $45 million a month to house illegal immigrants. And New York City has big new plans. NTD Samoa reports. On Tuesday, Massachusetts declared a state of emergency due to a surge of illegal immigrants in the state. We're declaring an emergency here in the state because there is an emergency here in the state. The numbers that we're seeing of individuals, of families who are coming into our state is unprecedented. Massachusetts is severely lacking resources while struggling to keep up with the influx. Governor Maura Healey wrote a letter to Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas calling on Washington to expedite work authorizations for illegal immigrants and provide additional fundings. Massachusetts shelter programs currently holds more than 20,000 people, an 80% increase from a year ago. According to Healey, there were 100 families seeking shelter every day in July and is costing taxpayers a staggering $45 million a month to make sure the state-sponsored program continues. As Massachusetts running low in its resources, New York City is looking to expand its capacity. A new shelter for 2,000 illegal immigrants, construction starts as early as Monday, is planned for Randalls Island's kiddie soccer fields. Officials said that the state will pay for it without specifying the cost. Last October, it cost the Big Apple at least $625,000 to build a shelter on the same island off Manhattan. But it was soon shut down due to a lack of use. Those who oppose the new plan said that New York City children will lose thousands of hours of recreation program. An adult sports league would also be canceled as a result of it. Around 100,000 illegal immigrants have arrived in the city since 2022, and Washington has contributed over $142 million to supply the city's demand. Sam Wong, NTD News. Coming up, the Supreme Court issues an order on the Biden administration rule regulating so-called ghost guns. What did the justices decide? And Ohioans are deciding on a key vote that could alter the state's constitution. Abortion access lies at the heart of the decision. We'll have that story and more after the break. Biden's ghost gun rule is remaining in effect for now. The Supreme Court today voted 5-4 to four to temporarily preserve the rule while legal challenges play out. The rule applies to unfinished gun parts that can be finished and assembled into firearms. The Biden administration updated its rule in 2022 to treat certain parts as fully functional firearms, requiring serial numbers for the parts, licensing for manufacturers, and background checks for purchasers. The Biden administration says this is necessary to prevent criminals from obtaining untraceable guns. The gun rights advocates say the administration doesn't have the authority to change the definition of a firearm without Congress. 
And abortion is in the spotlight. Ohio voters head to the polls today in a special election, which could have a major influence over abortion access in the state. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on what's known as Issue 1. The election will decide whether to make the Ohio Constitution harder to amend. If Issue 1 passes, the threshold for voters being able to change the state constitution would rise from a simple majority to 60%. That would make it difficult for a November proposal over abortion access to succeed. The proposal is called the right to reproductive freedom with protections for health and safety. It would remove Ohio's parental notification legislation when a minor wants an abortion and would permit abortion to the point when an unborn baby can survive outside the womb, typically around 24 weeks into pregnancy. It was introduced by a pro-abortion coalition that includes Planned Parenthood, Pro-Choice Ohio, and others. In 2019, the Ohio State Legislature passed a heartbeat bill that bans abortion around the six-week mark. That went into effect after the Supreme Court's Dobbs v. Jackson ruling last year. The law was challenged almost immediately and remains tied up in court. Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose says Issue 1 protects the Ohio Constitution from out-of-state interests who have figured out Ohio's Constitution is an easy mark. While Democrats argue that Issue 1 is an attempt by Republicans to quash voter efforts to enshrine abortion into state law after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And earlier today, I spoke with constitutional attorney Jenna Ellis for her take on this. Jenna, thanks so much for joining us. There's been debate on both sides of the aisle about this issue one in Ohio. What would you say are the pros and cons that we're considering here? Yeah, so what issue one would do is uh, strengthen the requirement threshold for an amendment to the state constitution. And I think it might shock a lot of people not in Ohio or even some Ohioans who didn't know that their state constitution only requires a simple majority vote uh, to amend their state constitution. And so really strengthening this is making government more difficult and to ensure there is predictability, there is consistency. So the conservative position uh, should be and rightly is that uh, to change a the constitutional parameters or amend the, a state constitution should be difficult. Contrast that with the federal level. It takes a two-thirds majority just to uh, propose an amendment either through both chambers of Congress or through two-thirds of the state legislatures. And then any amendment has to be ratified by three-fourths of the state. So that's a huge uh, threshold to overcome. So really the pro in this instance is to make sure that uh, just any whim of social popularity doesn't bend uh, the constitution of the state to its will. Of course, um, advocates for this amendment are suggesting that we should be more of a direct democracy and that we shouldn't have these elements of a constitutional republic built in uh, to the parameters and the contours of state constitutions. And so how does issue one impact the state's abortion amendment? Because that's been debated right now. Yeah, so why this is a huge issue right now uh, for some of the social priorities, uh, particularly of the left, is because uh, Ohio is poised to potentially have on uh, their citizens' initiative for a amendment to their state constitution is the so-called protection of abortion access. And so the left and the Democrats and pro-choice advocates want to codify so-called abortion rights into the state constitution. And if you raise that threshold 
to 60%, of course, that would mean it's a lot more difficult for them. But on the flip side, uh, to make sure that there are protections for life, uh, that would also be a 60% threshold. And so this does cut both ways. But of course, uh, all of the rhetoric in media today is surrounding the abortion question because the left wants to make it easier to have these constitutional amendments put into state constitutions so that they can uh, continue to, uh, to have abortions provided really uh, at whim. And so what would you say is the significance of this vote for the Ohio Constitution and why is it gaining national attention? Well, I think the abortion issue is why it's gaining national attention, but really for Ohio, I think that they need to look beyond just the abortion issue. Of course, uh, that does need to be debated on the merits. I think they need to uh, look beyond this and to recognize that predictability in the law is a good thing, and they shouldn't want their uh, highest state law of the land to bend and flex to a given whim of whatever a 51% majority would deem is uh, the, the law of the land that they prefer. So I think that raising... Uh, these standards and these requirements for a constitutional amendment is a good idea overall. All right. Thank you so much, Jenna Ellis, constitutional attorney. Really appreciate hearing your thoughts. Thanks, Steph. Great to join you. And on top of the Hollywood writer's strike, Los Angeles is grappling with another strike, this time by city workers. They're demanding higher wages. And the city's learning without essential workers, the city will not function. Respect is not just being treated right, that is essential. But being treated right also means a good wage so that you can raise your family in dignity. More than 11,000 Los Angeles City employees, including sanitation workers, lifeguards, and traffic officers, walked off the job this morning. Picket lines went up before dawn at the LA International Airport and other locations. Later in the day, workers rallied at City Hall. The local union said its members voted for the walkout because the city has failed to bargain in good faith. They are also alleging unfair labor practices. The Los Angeles mayor says the workers deserve fair contracts and that the city has been bargaining in good faith since January. The strike is planned to end tomorrow as the Hollywood writers' strike continues. And staying in California, a fire chief weighs in on the fatal helicopter crash on Sunday in which three men died when two firefighting helicopters collided midair. NTD's David Lamb spoke with the fire chief Sam DiGiovanna, a 35-year fire service veteran. Fire chief Sam DiGiovanna with Verdugo Fire Academy. What happened in the unfortunate helicopter collision in Southern California? What I can to tell you is two helicopters were involved in a brush fire in Cabazon and uh, one was doing uh, aerial reconnaissance and guiding the bigger helicopter to drop water in specific locations. Unfortunately, the two of those collided. Uh, the larger helicopter was able to land safely. The smaller reconnaissance helicopter did crash. All three members uh, on board uh, unfortunately passed away. I'm really sorry to hear that. Who were the firefighters that lost their lives? One was a division chief with CAL FIRE, one was a CAL FIRE captain, and the other one was a, a private fire department contracted pilot uh, that was contracted for CAL FIRE. But David, what I would like to say is this area is no stranger to firefighter fatalities. In Cabazon, October 26, 2006, five firefighters 
lost their lives fighting a brush fire right by here. So this is eight fatalities of firefighters in a very small geographical area. How often are fires prone to happen in this area? They're quite often. This area is where it transitioned through Beaumont's Banning area uh, and goes wraps around through into the desert of the Coachella Valley. You get a lot of winds in this area and the vegetation is very dry in here. So you have also a lot of steep topography. So when you have uh, dry warm uh, temperatures with uh, winds and low relative humidity, you get a lot of fires and this area is prone for that. As far as the collision itself, is there any insight you have so far? Well, usually there's no uh, insight on what caused it. That's what the investigation is. However, usually in aircraft or aviation incidents involving wildfires, extreme air turbulence is a factor or reduced visibility from the smoke. It could have been mechanical failure or at times it's communication uh, failure between the incident commander or the air attack uh, group supervisor who's assigned to coordinate the airspace within the fire's zone. Fire Chief Sam DiGiovanna, thank you so much for your time. We're sending best wishes to the families of the firefighters and the firefighter community. Okay, thank you. You be safe. And the fire chief said their brotherhood and sisterhood runs deep. He said even when he's not directly involved in the incident, a tragedy like this does hit home. And next, another Tesla has caught fire. Uh, this time at a high-end auto dismantler. Apparently, it was just idly sitting in a luxury vehicle yard when it burst into flames. Crews from the Sacramento Metropolitan Fire District responded to a Tesla that caught fire in Rancho Cordova. The vehicle was at a high-end auto dismantler last week. It was sitting idle when it spontaneously caught fire in the yard. Unable to move it to a safer location, crews had to put the fire out on the spot. It was blocked in and surrounded by millions of dollars in salvage vehicles, including Ferraris, Lamborghinis, and Bentleys. The vehicle was salvaged due to flooding from Florida. The district fire department tagged Tesla CEO Elon Musk in the tweet, but he hasn't replied to it. This is not the first time they have extinguished a Tesla. In January, a Tesla Model S car battery caught fire on Highway 50. It required 6,000 gallons of water to put it out. It's estimated that around 40% of online reviews are fake, not written by independent consumers who actually bought the product. We talk with an industry expert who walks us through an example of a fake review so that we'll know how to spot them. NTD's Fake Quarter has more. Almost half of all online reviews are fake, according to various studies. A lot of the time, it's because a business is trying to promote itself. So it creates accounts and writes positive fake reviews, or it pays organizations to write these fake reviews for them. It's detrimental, to be honest. It's detrimental to the consumer. It's detrimental to the seller. E-commerce expert Phil Masiello says there are ways to spot fake reviews. Some key signs. When the review is very, very long, most people don't have the time or patience to write so much. When the grammar is too good, most Americans write very casually when reviewing a purchase and generally don't care about grammar. When the poor reviews far outnumber the positive reviews and grow much more quickly as well. This shows the initial positive reviews might be fake. 
when there's too much detail about product design. This suggests the company itself may have written it. This is for a headphone set that has not good reviews. The first tell is that they're, they, they update, I love these headphones with two exclamation points. Now, you know, using all caps, writing that kind of headline, you say to yourself, is that really how people talk? But he breaks it down, the design, the sound quality, the comfort, the quality as a, as a whole. I mean, this is, a, this is one review. This is this whole thing that's, that's basically a book. If somebody gets headphones, right, they'll say, oh, man, I like them. They fit really well. You know, sounds great. Uh, good noise canceling, you know, whatever. <clears throat> but they're, they're not going to go into design. I think the small clip dongle design is the best for the Bluetooth earbuds. It allows for a larger battery. And I mean, who talks like that? Masiello believes someone from the company must have tried to justify its design choices. He says consumers wouldn't go so far when writing a review. Faye Quarter, NTD News. Coming up, nearly 100 men arrested for child abuse and 13 children rescued. Find out how the international criminal ring avoided police for years. And violence escalating in Haiti. The U.S. has just closed its embassy in the Caribbean nation. That and more when we come back. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Trump still holds a substantial lead against the other GOP candidates following his third indictment. Meanwhile, the judge is seeking a hearing about a potential order to limit what Trump can say publicly about the case. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis replaces his presidential campaign manager. The governor's chief of staff is taking over the position. The Supreme Court hands down a decision on ghost guns or untraceable homemade weapons. The ruling revives federal restrictions on ghost guns by freezing a lower court order. City workers in Los Angeles go on strike to demand higher wages. 11,000 city employees, including sanitation workers, lifeguards and traffic officers, walked off the job for 24 hours today. 13 children saved from abuse. Authorities arrested 79 people in the U.S. and 19 men in Australia for child sex abuse offenses. Here's how they describe the International Criminal Network. This has been a complex investigation. Members of this network were using encryption and other methods to avoid law enforcement detection whilst they were sharing videos and files of child abuse material. Today we celebrate the rescue of 13 children. The success of this operation is only possible because of the close partnership between the FBI, the Australian law enforcement community to include the state and territory officers. Police described the network as a criminal ring that shared videos and images of child abuse on the dark web. They allegedly used advanced software to anonymously share files, chat and access websites. Some offenders were involved for over 10 years, and some knew some of the children, according to the Australian authorities. In 2021, two FBI agents were killed while investigating a computer programmer suspected of involvement in the ring. 
And the United States closed its embassy in Haiti today due to people firing weapons nearby. Gang-related violence has been escalating in recent months. The State Department ordered people at the embassy to shelter in place and not leave their compounds. Others are advised to avoid the area around the embassy, which is located in Haiti's capital, Port-au-Prince. Officials also said people should not go near demonstrations or large groups of people and not attempt to drive through roadblocks. Killings, kidnappings and rapes continue to increase. Gangs have gradually taken over more territory, in some cases ousting officers from police stations. Meanwhile, citizens have reportedly lynched suspected gang members, according to the United Nations Security Council. And Ukraine says Russian missiles struck the eastern city of Pokrovsk on Monday night, killing at least seven people and injuring dozens more. Ukraine says Russian missiles struck the eastern city of Pokrovsk on Monday night, killing at least seven people and injuring dozens more. Witnesses said two missiles hit the city center within 40 minutes of each other. Pictures released by Ukrainian officials showed apartment buildings badly damaged, as well as a popular hotel in the city center, one of the few still operating in the eastern Donetsk region. This woman was at home and thought she was spared when the first blast hit, but was not so lucky when the second attack came. And then that's it. Bang. And that's all. The flame filled up my eyes. I fell on the floor, on the ground. My eyes hurt a lot. Otherwise, I'm okay. Just a shrapnel in my neck. That's it. This 75-year-old resident was also injured and had her home destroyed. I was talking on the phone, sitting, and then suddenly this flew out. And it fell, wrapping me up. Then the window fell on me. My back has cuts. I just got back from the hospital, you see. My knee and my thigh have cuts. I had glass here. Well, that's it, in a nutshell. Firefighters sorted through the rubble and debris overnight, but had to stop over fear of what officials called a high threat of repeated shelling. Witnesses told a Reuters cameraman that responders to the first strike were killed and injured in the second strike. Ukrainian authorities said at least 60 people were injured in the attacks. Chinese exports plummeted in July. Why is that? And how might it affect China and China's relations with the rest of the world? Earlier today, I spoke with Anders Kaur, publisher of the Journal of Political Risk and principal of Core Analytics. Anders Kaur, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for joining us. Chinese exports are suffering the sharpest drop since the start of the pandemic. What would you say is the significance of this? Some of the drop can be explained by uh, the United States and Europe uh, decoupling and de-risking uh, from the Chinese economy. Uh, the governments of, the, of you know, these major democracies are encouraging our companies and corporations um, to de-risk their supply chains in China in order to um, have less problems in the future if there were a conflict, and also to send a mes message to Beijing that what they're doing is unacceptable. And so how do you think all this, you know, will affect the average American? Uh, it could make the uh, prices a little bit higher, but the amount is so small, it could be a penny on a dollar. Um, you know, if you buy a $100 uh, toaster, it might just cost you another dollar not to get it from China. Um, that's been the effect of the 
uh, tariffs, the China tariffs that Trump put into effect. Um, and I don't think that the effect on the consumer is going to be much more than that. And so how do you think the U.S. should treat China in this sense going forward? Just more of the same maintain or are there risks involved? We should definitely increase tariffs, I think. Um, we should encourage and even uh, you know, uh, require our uh, allies to do the same. It, if we don't all uh, impose tariffs and sanctions on China together, then China will just shift its production elsewhere. So, for example, while its imports and exports with the U.S. and EU have decreased, uh, year over year, it has increased substantially with Russia. Now, that doesn't help China very much because Russia is such a small economy. It's got a tenth of, uh, you know, a twentieth of the combined economy of the U.S. and EU. How is China responding to these changes? Well, China is trying to divert its economy to its local domestic um, consumers. Uh, that's very hard because those domestic consumers are making less because they're exporting less to the United States and Europe. Uh, China is also trying to improve relations with Europe, but as we've seen with the latest data, that's not working. It's going in reverse. And China is trying to um, increase its imports and exports regionally um, with countries in Asia, like Japan, uh, South Korea, Southeast Asia. But these countries also don't trust China because China has territorial claims against almost all of them and is acting in a particularly aggressive way. China's boxing itself into a corner, essentially, economically, politically. Um, it has the military option of trying to take over Taiwan, but that'll make everything worse very rapidly. We've seen how much trouble Putin has in Ukraine. Um, I think it would be even more difficult uh, for China to take over Taiwan because you've got to go over all that all that maritime territory, all that, all the Taiwan Strait to get to Taiwan, and all of those ships will be, uh, you know, sh shooting ducks, shooting fish in a barrel, essentially for the Taiwan military. All right, thank you so much, Andrews Corp. Great to hear your perspective on all. You very much. Thank you. Coming up, could the Dallas Cowboys or any NFL team be worth nine billion dollars? Find out what the richest NFL team is valued at. And eager pickleball players hit the mall in Arizona. A new facility allows players to see instant replays of their best saves. We'll have that story after the break. Now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin to tell us about the NFL's first $9 billion team. That's right, Steph. The annual valuations are out. And according to Sportico.com, Dallas Cowboys topped the list at a whopping $9.2 billion. Now, not only are they the highest valued football team, they topped the $7.5 billion valuation of the NBA's Golden State Warriors and the 7.1 for baseball's New York Yankees. The Cowboys' five Super Bowl titles are behind only Pittsburgh and New England's six, yet they haven't advanced as far as even the conference championship game in nearly three decades. But the brand they've built as America's team, while playing their home games in the prestigious AT&T Stadium, 
and blowing the rest of the league away with just over a billion dollars in annual revenue puts them in the top spot. Meanwhile, the average NFL franchise was valued at more than $5 billion, which is more than twice the average NBA or MLB team. And in college sports, conference realignment discussions continue as the ACC will reportedly discuss adding Cal and Stanford to their conference. Now, the proposal has several obstacles, the most obvious of which is geography, as Louisville is the furthest west ACC school, but it's more than 2,000 miles from either California campus. In addition, the ACC itself has had recent grumblings about their own TV deal, which doesn't expire until 2036. Still, they line up academically well, and though neither California University boasts a powerhouse football program, Stanford is unquestionably the most successful top-to-bottom athletic department in the country, winning the IMG Directors' Cup in 26 of a possible 29 seasons. Now, for your sports viewing schedule tonight, all 30 baseball teams are in action, including the AL West first place Texas Rangers, who've won a league-high seven straight games. They'll start their newly acquired ace, Max Scherzer, while playing at the Oakland A's. And that's it for your sports news today. Steph, back to you. Thanks, Dave. Next, pickleball is now one of the fastest growing sports in the U.S. Inside an Arizona mall, a new indoor pickle mall is humming to meet the demand. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the new facility. Pickle Mall is open to anyone who wants to play in Tempe, Arizona. Hardcore players can sign up for a membership for extra benefits like discounts and court reservations. You'll see us opening more Pickle Malls, and, our, and our, our goal here is to create a great experience for serious Pickle Mall players, people who love this sport. We want this to be the most fun place to play. Pickle Mall has its own scoring system. Personalized clickers allow players to keep track of their points. On-court cameras capture memorable moments. When you walk into our facility, you receive these clickers. Uh, when you hit a point, or you, when you win a point, you go and click your clicker for your side. The point thing changes, you clip these on your belt, that way you never have to go back to the screen and you have, the, you have your scoring history in your app. So when you have a great replay that you wanna, you wanna memorialize, you go here and you hit the replay button, and the replay is saved. Kuhn thinks the partnership with Arizona Mills Mall will revitalize dying shopping malls. One thing that we're excited about, and I think our, our, our partners at Simon are, are excited about, is we're bringing new people to the shopping mall. And once they're here, they will, they will check out the shops, they'll, they'll go get some food, they'll, they'll, I'm, I'm going to go to the Nike store later and buy some, buy some clothes so I can play. Pickleball is a mix of tennis, ping pong, and badminton, and it's one of the fastest growing sports in the U.S. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. If you have any news tips or feedback for our show, please do email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.